exist among us, and sometimes they win. Even the devil was an angel once. The world has its own rules, and these rules are not human. Some of us seek answers to the origin and existence of cryptids and the unexplained. Join us as we venture beyond the known and accepted boundaries. Welcome to our nightmare. I think you're going to like it. Hey folks, good evening and welcome to Phantoms of Monsters Radio where we explore and discuss the unknown and the unexplained. I'm your host, Lon Stricker. Thanks for joining me. Uh, the Phantoms of Monsters Radio channel is made possible by you clicking the subscribe button and by you sharing our programming. Uh, super chat donations are essential for us to continue offering you our unique content. And uh, your consideration is very much needed and appreciated. Now, tonight... Um, we have Morgan Knudsen with us, uh, co-founding and leading Anthony Secret Paranormal Research and teaching since 2003. Morgan Knudsen experiences and knowledge has led to researching and co-creating a unique investigative program called Teaching the Living and subsequently has been featured on hosted numerous specials, live presentations, and TV shows like uh, the Discovery Channel, The Haunting, uh, T&E, Destination America, Travel Channel, CBC, CTV, Planet Plus, TLC, Crime Plus Investigations, Celestial Tiger Networks in China, and of course, Coast to Coast AM. Now, Morgan's programs are now practiced in three different countries and part of numerous social work and psychology secondary courses, education courses in Canada. She is also a regular contributor to number one magazine, UK Haunted Magazine. Her work has been presented at the Rhine Research Institute and her book, Teaching the Living, Heartbreak to Happiness in a Haunted Home is now available. And we will be talking about that this evening. So Morgan, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's good to be here. Now, teaching the living. What do you have to teach the living? <laughs> it's definitely not me doing the teaching. It's usually <laughs> non-physical doing the teaching. Okay. Um, but it is. It really is about uh, the the basis for the program is is really about our emotional and connection with with non-physical and psi. It's something that I think gets negated so often with paranormal research is that we think, you know, this is something that's external completely, that it's always happening to us. And what I've found is that it doesn't happen to us, it happens through us. Mm -hmm. So teaching the living is really about that. It's about reconnecting with who we are so that we can understand that what we get back in the in the world, whether it be through paranormal phenomenon, physical phenomenon, whatever it happens to be, is a reflection of, of where we are emotionally, psychologically, and, and spiritually. So in your program, how do you start and how do you uh, continue with it to actually, you know, you talk about a paradigm, you talk about using yeah. different types of tools, explain a bit to us about it. Sure. It really, with, with, with teaching the living, depending on what's what setting I'm in, it's it's really getting to people getting to get people to take a hard look at who they are, 
what they're presenting into the world and what they're projecting into the world. If what kind of person are you being? And I'm not talking about what you're doing physically and what type of actions you're taking. I'm talking about how you are emotionally in the world. What energy, what presence are you bringing to the table? Um, And once people can really get a beat on that and take a hard look at things like their own emotional center, what wounds haven't they cleaned up? What's going on within them that might be echoing back within the world around us. And teaching the living is really about that. It's about getting people to understand that how we are on that emotional level is being reflected back to us. So for me, whether I'm dealing with a client or whether I'm in the classroom talking with, with, you know, students from other countries or whatever it is, it's really becomes about that deep dive. And when they, they see where they are in reflection as to what's going on around them, then things start to click into place as to why the things are happening the, the way that they are. So for me, it's about that acknowledgement and then meeting people where they are, because often my programs are in like social worker psychology programs, getting them to understand that everybody has a different perspective and bead on happiness, on you know that better feeling place that everybody really wants to get to. And then when we get there, Interestingly enough, the environment, the outer environment begins to reflect back to us that emotional shift and change. So the people who are experiencing, say, the nasty paranormal activity that nobody wants to deal with in their home, that begins to shift into either something that is is better feeling or it disappears or something like that happens. So the programs are based off of a lot of people through that have researched this throughout history, Dr. William Rolls work, Dr. Scott Rowe's work, people like that. And uh, it just takes it to that next level and makes it practical for people. So the anthology is basically that they can find ways to deal with say paranormal activity hauntings as such on their own terms. Yeah. And to, to shift it for, to shift their lives for the better overall in general with Mm -hmm. a long-term lasting solution. Um, You know, not something that's a temporary fix, but something that is going to shift that for them for, for the good. And then they can be aware of it going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause as we know, uh, a lot of times hauntings are a result of the way people live. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, you, you put it out there to try to get them to change that and, and, to deal with it, uh, which is something I've been trying to do from the very beginning when I'm dealing with clients is, uh, you know, you've got to change uh, the way you live. There's a lot of dysfunction here and other things going on that cause a lot of this. Yeah. Uh, So that's what you're talking about. Absolutely. And, you know, we see it played out again and again, you know, within within past research, as I was saying from other parapsychologists, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, re- in regards to things like psychokinesis and macropsychokinesis and things like that, um, where we know that there is an emotional connection to what is going on, what is being projected in our environment. And, you know, we, and we can see it on such a, a very basic level as, um, you know, when we're going to the office in the morning and we walk into the room and if you're having a bad day up to you get to the office, you can almost guarantee you're going to have a bad day the mm-hmm. rest of your day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just stuff starts to snowball and you're going like, well, this went wrong and that went wrong. And, uh, you know, it's like the whole day was horrible. Um, but it might have started out like you stubbed your toe. 
and you've taken that energy into the rest of your day. And so it's it's really about stopping that momentum. And like you were saying, and I think this is such a such a good point where, you know, it's like the, the things that people are bringing into their life and bringing into their environment. And they're just they're really not conscious of their own role in it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. I mean, when you when you go into a situation where uh, people are having issues and uh, the first thing you think is, well, I've got a you know, I've got a ghost or something around here or a spirit. And, um, you know, the first thing you got to look at is, well, who's the cause of it? Maybe somebody here is actually causing this. Yeah. You know, PK activity is it's it's an interesting phenomenon and it's not really easy to pinpoint. Uh, but I can also see where that can where that can go into some person's overall life at work, in, at play anywhere, you know, that it 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 kind of starts there. Yeah. And like you say, snows ball into some snowballs into something bigger, uh, yeah, even relationships. Absolutely. Yeah, big time. Yeah. If it's if it's going down the hole in one area it's likely bleeding into other areas is what mm. I've found. It mm -hmm. never is something that's isolated. And usually, as, and you've probably seen this before as well, as you start talking to clients and you start delving into where they are in, on a personal level and you can see where things have gone off the rails. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it really is become, it becomes a symptom rather than a, a, a direct cause. Mm. So true. So how do you deal with this? What's what's your procedure? How you start training people to recognize this and to deal with it? Well, the first thing that is is so important is what we we started talking about, which was to get a bead on on their own present state of being. Because it's so funny how many people are that out of touch with actually what they're feeling and where they are. There, I can't count the amount of clients that I've talked to, and I said, okay, tell me about the stressors that are going on in your experience. And they'll go, my life is great. What are you talking about? I don't know what you mean. No, no, no. <laughs> Take the mask off, sit down, tell me about the stress, what, what's going on. And sometimes it takes a while for them to sort of piece through it and go, oh my God, well, wait a minute. Like there is, oh, there's this and there's that. And you know, well, my kid's kind of falling apart and well, this job's kind of falling apart and you know, well, things haven't been good in this area. Um, but they're so just wrote within their own dialogue that they're to say, oh, I'm fine. Everything's great. You know, that they, this is what they do. Um, so that's really becomes the first step. And then it becomes a matter of taking a look at, at goals. You know, what is it that you want? How do you want to feel in your life? Because it's not this. Um, and getting them to start to pinpoint what is it that you actually want to feel. Um, so and then depending on the person, because everybody's different. Everybody's got a different version of what joy in their own life looks like. Mm -hmm. um, so each case is very specific, but you know, once you rule out all of the, the, the natural explanations and you rule out the psychological and the mental and the, these, all of the, the, you know, the normal things that you touch on, then you, you have to start to work with them. And sometimes you have to work with the community around them and start to build them into a better place. And as I say, it's different for everybody, um, you know, nobody is the same, but it's, uh, you know, it's getting them to start recognizing these emotions and then taking a look at the haunting and figuring out, you know what, where's the pattern? When is this stuff happening? What's going on in your experience that when this stuff is happening, is there a precursor? Um, so you're looking at patterns. So you want the short-term solutions and then you want them to get a long vision. Where are you going? What are you doing? What's your purpose? 
Mm, interesting. We had a quick question here. Do paranormal entities yeah. prefer harassing those who are low energy? I love that question. Um, the way I always I always look at this is almost like a, a emotional continuum. If you look at your emotions as if they're on a radio dial, and I use this example quite a bit, especially in my book, where if you look at your emotions, almost like you've got the negative emotions on the on the far end, and maybe some of the really dark ones like grief or depression or things like that, all the way up to the middle, which might be frustration or contentment, maybe boredom is in there. And then way at the other end, you've got like passion and fun and joy and all of those things. And what I've what I've found over the years, and I think what others in parapsychology have found as well, is that when you're down into those negative emotions, your emotions are almost like a radio dial and they're picking up on a signal. And that signal is broadcasting. So you're not going to tune into country music down here when the country music station is up here. You're going to resonate with whatever is sitting on that frequency. So if you're sitting in a place of grief or anger or depression or anything like that, typically that's the type of energies that you end up resonating with, both mm -hmm. on the person side of things, the living side of things, as well as the paranormal side of things. Everything is on a frequency. So when you end up tuning yourself out of that and you move up that emotional scale, then what you receive starts to become very different. And it's not really a matter of fighting whatever it is down here. It's a matter of just tuning yourself out of it um, and, and allowing that to just let go. So for me, it's not necessarily that they're, you know, you've got a negative entity that's, that's feeding on negative emotion or anything like that, but rather you're, you're just resonating with them at the time. Um, you can tune yourself away from that, but it, it does take some emotional work. Yeah, I have found in the past, and I don't know how relevant this is, but you'll be in, involved with a situation with a client. And uh, it, there always seems to be something there, like an illness or a past experience, grief, somebody's past or somebody's broke up, had a relationship. It always seems like, yep, something's coming in to fill the vacuum yeah, and starts causing tr issues. Uh, and a lot of times, and this is one thing I have found out and talked about a lot. Many of the times when I do work with clients, uh, they have abilities as well. Yeah. They're like what I call a beacon. Uh, they, they attract the energy. So, uh, you know, and it is, it's difficult, you know, I've been with cases for years with people trying to get them to understand what, what's really going on. Uh, maybe your concepts are something I need to use or look into. I find it's really helpful because it gets people to engage the process a little bit more mm -hmm. um, instead of just pointing outwards and, and going into blame mode or going mm -hmm. into victim mode mm -hmm. uh, because that's what I find a lot of people do. And, and part of it's because, you know, our media and things like that have kind of trained us into that. We've, we've, we see these shows where it's like, you know, these people are victims of this outside thing and that other side of it's not really presented. So many people just don't go there in their head. Um, you know, but then you get the idea as well. And you, you've probably had this also where that state of being of, uh, you know, this, the, whatever it is that's happening to them has almost become a bit of an identity for them where yeah. they're just like, you know what, I'm the, 
I'm the unique person that this is happening to. And if I let this go, what does that mean for my uniqueness? What does that mean for me? Um, so I've had that as well. So I think, I think the readiness for change, um, in the book, I talk about four stages of readiness and the last one being, um, that they're so sick to death of where they are. They're mm -hmm. ready to hear you. Um, and I think before they're, before that stage of readiness, a lot of, a lot of people, they're just, they're, they're not going to move on it because this concept and where it can throw people is that it takes some deep diving into sometimes some painful places. And that can be something that people don't want to do. They, they want to just gloss it over. You know, they think, oh, if I just bury it enough, it's not happening. But the reality is, as you and I both know, is if you start to bury that stuff, then whenever you start to gloss over a wound, it gets infected. Mm -hmm. And it starts to bleed and it starts to ooze and fester. And that's really what ends up happening with, with these situations where if you're burying this stuff, you know, that's fine, but don't worry, it will get worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, you know, I, I've got a bugaboo about paranormal TV in general, but, uh, you, <laughs> you know, know. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You, you see a lot of that when, you know, you're, you've got a case presented on, on a show. But they don't go into the real factors as far as what's going on with the actual person itself. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I I was I used to sit there and watch these shows and, and say to myself, "Well, there's something going else going on here that yeah. they're not telling us." And they used to really bug the hell out of me because uh, you know because of that. Uh, so uh, yeah, I get that, and I, I'm not saying that there's going to be that some of these shows are going to start changing that format. Cause I don't think they will for commercial. I don't reasons. think so either. Uh, but uh, oh. it would be nice. I mean, if there was more explanation behind the case. Yeah. I know on, uh, I, I do guest spots on both haunted hospitals and paranormal 911. And yeah. uh, it's, it's always interesting because, you know, I'll be looking at these cases and I always have them send me stacks of information, like all the interviews. I'm like, I don't want just, I don't want a summary of the case. I want you to send me the interviews because usually once, because basically my, for those of you guys who haven't, haven't seen the show, I, I basically give my take on people's reports and opinions. So mm -hmm. um, uh, I will get, you know, one of these cases and I try my best in the short amount of time that I have to try to drill down to, to what actually might be going on. And sometimes it's, it's not what people want to hear. <laughs> they want to hear this other explanation, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a stickler for turning around and saying, no, no, this is, you know, you brought me here. You're going to get my opinion, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Um, and it might not, it's, it's not going to be the, you know, the terrifying, horrifying story that you probably are looking for. Yeah. I hear that all the time. I mean, you know, I will tell them in my opinion what I think is going on, and they look at you like what, and tell yeah. you, I don't, "That's not what I want to hear." <laughs> yeah. Well, oh yeah. That's the facts. It's a, uh, it's the facts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Got another question here from Space Cadet Lottie. Uh, question: How do you tell the difference between intuition and worry? Oh, I that is a really really good question. Thank you. Um, I think one of the best ways to figure out what's intuition versus what is worry is how does it feel when 
it's when it's happening to you. Mm -hmm. How does it feel? Um, I talk, I've got another book coming out in the next little while called uh, The Gift of Instinct. And I have an entire chapter in there about exactly this. And that there's two types of fear that I've found over the years of doing this. One is learned fear and the other is connected fear. And what's really interesting is that in learned fear, learned fear usually has a backstory. We can usually figure out where we've gotten this from where it's like, you know what, I've, you know, my mother was afraid of spiders. And so therefore I'm afraid of spiders, or I had this incident or something like that. There's a story that we're telling ourselves that's not coming from a, a, a it's, it's coming from a, an egoic basis, basically. Mm -hmm. um, where with connected fear, connected fear is a little bit different. Connected fear is something that will save your life. And that com that's not coming from a story you're telling yourself about a situation. That's coming from somewhere else. And what I found is that connected fear has a feeling behind it. And it's the same, it's the same instinct that you'll have an antelope out in the field and that antelope will be, you know, eating its grass and whatever. And suddenly it sits up and it knows instinctively that there is a lion in the grass. And it knows that. And it's not because it's telling itself a story about the lion in the grass. Mm -hmm. There's an intuitive notion about it. And what's fascinating is that when people act on intuition, it's like those herd of antelope, those antelope, uh, other people who are, who are in, in, um, in connection with your, with your, with that intuition and instinct will know you're right. And they will go with you. And that's why a herd will move with the, with the one antelope that, realizes there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's there's a couple of different ways here that you can you can look at it. And one is determining, is this connected fear or is this a learned fear? And when you can make that distinction, then you can start to work through, you know, how how does this feel within me? And you'll you'll know. You'll know. Yeah, that, that, that's that's interesting yeah. because I have uh well I'm an intuitive and uh, you know but when I talk to people that I'm working with, the one of the first things I tell them, and I used to say it all the time, is fear sees. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't matter with it, unless it's something you've learned or something like you said that's something it's instinctive. It, it's it's always there. You may not think it's there, but yeah. it, it kind of forms every judgment, especially if there's something like like a haunting or such, and there's you know any type of encounter, the fear is what really motivates, drives everything. And, you know, it causes all kinds of uh, the brain to go different ways and start making you think a lot of different things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it will. And, and I think too, when you, what I found is that when you get up into those more positive emotions, what's interesting is that that argument that you'll have with yourself about, connected or learned fear disappears. Mm -hmm. And when you're in those higher levels of emotions, when you're in joy and things like that, what ends up happening is that that starts to shift and you end up going places or instinctively going places or you're pulled or called to places because you're going somewhere better rather than avoiding something you're afraid of. So what I find is when you're doing the emotional work, it becomes not so much about this, you know, oh, I've, I've got to get away from this because I'm afraid. It's like, hey, there's something really nice over there and I want to go see what it is. And then it turns out, you know, you you miss the thing 
that, you know, what is, was going to cause you trouble to start with. And I, mm -hmm. so that's an interesting distinction too. Hmm. Vincent asked, uh, and I, I mean, this is a pretty straight up question. Do some negatives entities use fear against you? Of course they do. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, I think any, anytime you're, you're dealing with a predator, right. If, mm -hmm. if you've got something that is, uh, that, that sees a weakness or can exploit a weakness, it will, um, you know, and the key is with, with a lot of these situations is again, is to bring your, bring a, a certain level of presence into the room with you. You know, if you come into a space and you're feeling fear or agitation or upset, then, you know, again, you're resonating with something there that you're, you're going to end up having an interaction with it in the same way that if you walk into a room and you're dealing with an animal, that animal, if you, if you walk into a room with a dog and you know, you've got that presence about you, then it's going to be read that way. And it's, it's not going to end well. Um, you know, but so with, with entities, it's kind of the same thing, especially with the negative ones, because they act, they behave so differently than, than people. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, I think anytime that you're, you're coming into a situation, no matter what the situation is with, with that type of energy, then you, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage and a, a, in a place of disempowerment. Now in, in your teachings, um, and you, and you, told me before the show that you do less now as far as investigation and more so on the academic side. Uh, do you think that people that actually do a paranormal investigations can learn from you in order to deal with clients? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I, I, what I hope to bring to the table anyway is mm -hmm. a different way of, of, seeing these situations so that it becomes more about empowering the people rather than about chasing something that we can't necessarily control. Mm -hmm. And it, I, what I'd like to see people do is become a little bit more invested in parapsychology um, rather than just the sort of the ghost hunting thrill ride that often is portrayed in, in the media. Because I think once people get into the the foundations of parapsychology you know people and researchers like jb ryan and william roll and you know all of these incredible the, the giants that the shoulders that we stand on um you know you begin to piece this out a little bit a little bit different and you look at the client a little bit differently um you know it's less about the house and it's more about you know what's going on how can you change somebody's life for the better from the inside out. So that's, that's what I'm hoping that, that people can take away from it. And for the people who are having these experiences and trying to understand what is going on to turn around and go, Hey, wait a minute. This makes sense. It's, this isn't some random thing. This is something that, you know, I can start to fix. I can take steps right now to mm -hmm. be able to, to correct this. Now your title, your book suggests that you may have had some type of paranormal experience that started as, this whole thing all for you. Uh, can you tell us what happened? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I had, I've lived in, in haunted places all my life. Um, originally, uh, the first one I lived in was in, in British Columbia. And, uh, you know, we, I was very young at the time. I was about nine and uh, we lived in this dupe, this, I guess it was a fourplex. And I, there had been activity going on for quite a while there. We were renovating the house and there was stuff going on all the time. We would hear uh, the typical footsteps in the house. We'd see apparitions. Um, stuff was disappearing and coming back. We had, uh, we'd see impressions on the bed, like somebody was laying on the bed. 
Um, so they're really like just the typical haunting things that were happening. But um, I would, I remember the one morning I heard somebody downstairs in the kitchen and I came downstairs because I thought, okay, it's my mom and dad, they're up. But it was early. It was about five, six in the morning. It was still dark. And I came down the stairs and I noticed the light was on in the kitchen. And I got to the bottom of the steps and I said, hello. Now where the steps were and where the kitchen was, you couldn't see into the kitchen, but you could just tell the light was on. And the, I heard footsteps in there that just quit. As soon as I said hello, quit. And like, okay, that's odd. And when the noise quit, my instinct went through the roof. My intuition went up and I was like, that's not my parents. I don't know what this is. It's not my parents. And I couldn't even move. Like I was so terrified. I couldn't even move. And I went to turn the light on, which was right beside me. And it was like one of those little switch lights where you turn the, turn the knob light wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. So I freaked out and I like went up the stairs. I was trying to call for help. My mom and dad came down the stairs. So I met them halfway and they thought somebody had broken into the house. So my dad went downstairs, like totally prepared to beat this guy up. And he turned on the light that I couldn't turn on and it turned on instantly. No problem. And whatever it was, was gone. Um, but I, to this day, remember clear as a bell, a opaque shape coming out of that kitchen mm -hmm. at me, like completely remember that. And, uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was so impactful and it's, it terrified me. But once I got over the fear, then it was fascination. It was like, what was this? What happened? Um, and it was, it was fascinating to me. So you know, at the time I was so fortunate because the investigators who were prevalent at that time were people like Lloyd Auerbach and Carrie Gaynor and people like that. So, I mean, my whole experience for decades after became, I got to understand mm -hmm. what this is. This is amazing. Um, and yeah, lo and behold, here I am. So, <laughs> but yeah, my whole yeah. life, all, all sorts of stuff happening. Well, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. When that stuff happened to me, I didn't understand at all what was going yeah. on. I mean, I didn't live in a haunted house, but I, um, you know, my first real experience was at the Gettysburg Battlefield. And amazing. that's when it really, you know, you start thinking, oh, well, you've had a, you've had a thought that something maybe had been going on, but you really didn't know. Yeah. And like you, you, you want to know more. Oh, yeah. And it's like, yeah, now I know why I'm getting this feeling when something's around or, you know, so interesting. It's it's so cool because, you know, this stuff people I think people forget that, you know, it, it it's really about connection and it's about play and curiosity and embracing the unknown and and so much joy. I think people miss you know, we, we talk about the frightening stuff and, you know, that's what people predominantly see on TV, but statistically 95% of people's experiences are super positive. Mm -hmm. And I think people miss that aspect of it. And part of the reason why I wanted to write the book the way I did was to get people to really understand that there is a, a joy that comes with this connection to non-physical that is so amazing and it can take away the fear of death. You know, you can have these incredible experiences where you realize, you know, we're not by ourselves. We're not just a meat suit walking around. It can be one of the most empowering relationships of your life. 
And so that was one of my major motivations for this was so that, that people can realize like this doesn't have to be something that's terrifying, although that's what the shows would like us to, to believe mm -hmm. um, that normally it's not. And what's so funny is that, you know, if you turn around and say to people, have you had a paranormal experience? Oftentimes the people who have had a, a psi experience will say no, even though they have maybe you know, had communication from their grandmother or had communication from a family member that's passed over and they don't equate it with paranormal. They equate it with, but that was grandma. So it's interesting. Yeah. Like the wording is, is very, very important. Yeah. And, and especially you're right. I mean, that, that's how it was in my family. Um, we never talked about the paranormal. My parents had no idea yeah. what was going on with me. And uh, when, but each of us have had experiences to where one of our family deceased family members would communicate with us or li literally manifest in front of us. That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, it was just, it just seemed like it was part of uh, our life. That was the way things should be. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's the way I was raised. I mean, I was raised in a very conservative Lutheran household, you know, you don't really consider that as being much of uh, anything to do with paranormal people believing in the paranormal, right. but uh, it, it seemed to be very standard, at least in our family, that yeah, you know, the the dead show up sometimes, and uh, that's just part of the way things are. Yeah, it's funny because um, I've got a, a very dear friend who is. Uh, unbelievably intuitive. I mean, you, you almost classify him as a medium. I think, I don't think he thinks of himself that way, but mm -hmm. he is. And it's funny because when we first met, you know, I would, I would talk about the paranormal and he's uh, quite a bit older than me. He's elderly now. And he would look at me and he'd be like, he'd be like, what do you mean by paranormal? Like, what do you mean? And I always thought it was so weird because I thought you've been you've been one of these people who, you know, you see spirits, you talk about them all the time. Like he could, he was able to channel incredible. I mean, it was just mm. amazing. And, uh, and he'd be like, what do you mean by paranormal? And I'm like, well, you know, there's, and I'd give him the sort of the overview of it. And he'd be like, Oh, Oh, that kind of sounds like what I do. <laughs> it's like, it is, you know, but again, he, like, he had no connection with this word because it was like, yeah, but this is just normal. Like, this is who I talk to. This is who I <laughs> was like, what do you mean? It's weird. Like, mm -hmm. I don't understand. So yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. I mean, in my own family, my great, great grandfather was the president of uh, the first psychical research organization in Canada, mm -hmm. um, Albert Duran Watson. And um, he, so he was one of the groundbreakers here in Canada um, around parapsychology. And he, I mean, he put a lot on the line family wise, career wise, because he was a physician, um, a very noted physician and very noted poet. Like his house now in Ontario is a historical location. Um, so he was, he had a major impact, but at the time it wasn't talked about back then it was, you know, you're, you're a physician and this is what you're doing. What the hell is wrong with you? Um, so he put a lot on the line just to write his two books and put them out there. So, I mean, you're definitely not alone in the people who, you know, have, have really fought through a stigma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so true. I mean, but yeah. it, like I said you, you, earlier, it's um, it, it's funny how well, well family will think something like that is normal. 
And I, honestly, I, and this is another thing that happened to me. You know, I, I, I was born and raised in this area, and I moved down south. I lived down south for 40 years. And then I moved back up here several years later. And uh, when I came back up here, it's almost like a spigot went off of paranormal activity. I'm having people calling me left and right about wow. hauntings in the town itself. I literally did. And now this, there was a there was a, a well-known case here in it's Hanover, Pennsylvania. There was a well-known case uh, of a house that was haunted here. And, um, but I started getting phone calls from everybody. I, it seemed like I had 25 cases in the first 18 months I was here. That's amazing. And it's funny because five of those cases were within two blocks of this house. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I didn't even know anything about this. And, and, uh, so, um, I don't know, you know, but it's, it's almost like, um, it was a trigger went off. I, and I don't, I, I can't explain that. But uh, yeah, I mean it, it's it's interesting. Um, and here's something I want to ask you about in on the show, and I asked you about it earlier or before we started the show. The use of fire in your teaching. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So it became a passion for me quite a number of years back, about I'd say seven years ago. Um, I was really fortunate enough to have two teachers, uh, one from Australia and then one from Edmonton, who were brilliant and. They, I, I really wanted to learn it because they were so brilliant at it, fire breathing and fire eating and things like that. And I was like, this is the coolest thing. And it seemed so empowering. And I really wanted to understand this and learn it. And they were kind enough to, to take me through and, and, and teach me. And what started for me as, you know, something really amazing to learn and, and, you know, begin to master it turned into a realization that so much of it was about shifting your own paradigms in terms of how you view the world and the stories that you've been told about certain things, whether it be fire or the paranormal or, or anything else, uh, and really calling into question what you really know about those things. So for example, um, with fire, and one of the things that I talk to my, my students about, or if I'm doing a lecture or anything like that, is I say, you know, how many people have had the talk from their parents, you know, fire is hot, don't touch fire, it's terrible, there's no middle ground, it will burn you. And of course, everybody puts their hand up. And I say to them, okay, if I can change your mind about that, then you have to give me a shot at being able to change your mind about paranormal too. And they all go, ah, yeah, right, all right. And uh, so I start, I start working with fire right in front of them. And there's no trick to it. It's not magic. Um, there's nothing on my hands. There's nothing on, you know, I'm not, there's nothing I coat my mouth with or anything like that. It's strictly science. It's, it's understanding thermal lag. It's understanding fuels. It's understanding all of these things that allow for certain tricks at certain times um, and certain manipulations at certain times. And it's, it's really quite phenomenal. And it doesn't mean that fire's not dangerous or can't be destructive or mm -hmm. anything like that. Of course it can. But it doesn't mean that fire can't be touched and handled and, and certain things like that. There's a loophole. There's a gray area. And so once they kind of get over that and they, <laughs> they realize that I'm not just, you know, fooling around with them, um, 
then they they really begin to question the stories that they were told, you know, as kids. That, oh, ghosts aren't real. That's silly. That's all science fiction. That can't happen. And so I find it a really great visual tool uh, for people to really begin to understand that no, 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 you have to you have to start examining what you're thinking instead of just believing everything you think. Mm. Mm. Uh, Nancy wanted to know how you use fire as an elemental energy. Now I know it's an, an element, it's primal. Uh, do you use it like that? Yeah, it's what I find about fire is it, it's almost like having a dance partner. And that dance partner is very alive. It very much has a mind of its own. Mm -hmm. um, it can have a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to bring the right energy to the table when you're using it. If I'm feeling upset or angry or anything like that, I don't touch it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very conscious about the energy that I bring to the table with it. Um, because I find if, you know, if there's, if something's going to happen, it's going to be within that negative emotion. So I find that fire is something very, very similar to non-physical energy. You have to respect it. You have to be able to understand that it is going to do what it's going to do. You will never master it. It will always, you know, have its quirks. And even if I'm choreographing something uh, with it, it's, you know, it'll change its mind last minute and go do something else. Then <laughs> you got to change your choreography. So it's, yeah, it, it's really an interesting, it's really an interesting element. So for me, yeah, it's very much about seeing it as something that's organic. And, uh, and once you, once you can kind of understand that, then you, you, you just, you bring a new respect and a, you bring a new relationship to the table. You know, it's interesting the way you described that, that if you don't feel right, you're not going to deal with using uh, I think it's like that with the paranormal or very much helping with people. Um, if, if I am not feeling up to it, if I'm not, if I'm feeling either weak or just not right in some respect, I am not going to get involved with a case at least that day anyway. Yeah. I just back off because there's something telling me right there that. Yeah. No, stay away. <laughs> you just well, back off from it. Absolutely. And, and you know, when, whenever you're helping somebody, no matter what the situation is, you know, if, if you're, if you're not in the mood or you're not up to speed with it, or you're not, your cup's not full mm -hmm. and your cup's not overflowing, then you make the other person a thief because the other person is then taking from something from you that they don't, that you don't have, and they don't even know. So it's, it's really one of those things where, you know, you really have to look after yourself and to, to keep that cup full so that, you know, you can, you can bring to the table, you know, all of who you are, all of your connection, because sometimes those people and oftentimes those people are struggling to find theirs. Now, in the book, you talk about different forms of hauntings. Uh, give it, give people what your thoughts are on different types of hauntings i mean i think sure. each of us have a different yeah. description but yeah so um what i've what i've found like there's the, the the spr has a very the society of psychical research has a very distinct categories of of hauntings which i, mm -hmm. I usually go by during investigations but for for people in this book i kind of brought them to a new i brought them to a, a sort of a new understanding by simplifying things a little bit so one of the things that I introduced was the idea of, you know, the survival research hypothesis, which is that we're interacting with spirits, we're interacting with 
um, you know, people who were once here and are now consciousness, their greater consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got something that's a little bit different, which is the typical, what we would consider like a negative entity. So that's something that might be, for example, a thought form that's been, you know, birthed from negative emotion. Um, and we see examples of this in various uh, uh, research studies over the years. Um, one of the concepts behind this, which we can talk about later, was the Philip experiment in Ontario. Right. Um, yeah, where, and I wrote about that ex- extensively as well, which is where people who focused enough on a made up character actually created a consciousness through macropsychokinesis. And it was <laughs> created out of nothing, just pure focus. And so it's leaned, it, I, I, very much lean towards that as a, as a strong explanation for, for negative entities. And then you've got the stuff that I think most people know as, as something like residual energy, where it's things in the environment that don't have, it, it's not conscious, it's not in real time. It's the environment replicating um, sounds, sights, uh, you know, smells and things like that, that are just replaying the environment. Um, so I, I try to break it down into just, just super simple formats for people that they can kind of get their heads around a little bit. Yeah, and uh, uh, and I I wrote about it in my my recent book about memes and and manifestations. Yeah, uh, thought forms, topos that you know. Yeah. Now I've always thought there was something a lot to that. Well, of course, I I, I believe yeah. that poltergeist or thought form manifestations for the most part. Uh, you know, when you go in and, and yeah. start dealing with uh, a, what turns out to be a, a thought form, it's always a human that's responsible and unconsciously yeah. for it happening, and you got to they've got to deal with for the most part. Yeah. So yeah, that's a big part of it. I, I, I yeah. absolutely agree with you and the Philip experiment. I wrote a bit about that as well. So yeah. that's funny. Um, go ahead and describe it. Uh, it, it, it was a very intriguing. Sure. intriguing yeah. Experience. The Philip experiment is, is phenomenal. So it, it took place in, in Ontario, Canada, and there we go. It's a great picture. Um, took place in Ontario, Canada, and it was a experiment designed by the Toronto Society of Psychical Research and uh, Mensa, a number of people from Mensa. And the idea was, was that they were going to use the old Victorian seance sittings and, and processes to see if they could conjure a consciousness that was not something that was had been living at one point or anything like that they created a character by the name of philip and mm-hmm. he had a backstory and he was super involved it was really really interesting he was kind of a sleazy character <laughs> and uh, he was a murderer he murdered his wife and there was this whole thing um so they ended up with this this character and they focused and focused and focused trying to connect with it and what was so interesting was that they went for quite a long time with no results at all And then when they began to realize that joy and having fun at the sittings was a factor uh, within a couple of days, boom, they had, they had responses and this Philip would respond to its name. It would, you know, give information. It would um, uh, react to them. It would say hi to them. It was, it was very, very interactive. Interestingly, it would only respond with answers that, the people in the room knew. So even if they had the answer wrong, it would repeat back the wrong answer um, because it was literally a, a manifested consciousness. Um, it was like a, like, like a symptom of macrokinesis. It was really cool. So 
Um, they replicated this experiment again with another group with another mm -hmm. character named Lilith mm -hmm. and bam, they had the same reaction. Right. Um, same thing. So it was, to me, it's one of the most striking and most important studies that has ever been done in parapsychology. Yeah, I agree with it. You know, and I'm going to date myself. I was living in Hamilton at the time this happened. Yep. And, um, I knew about it, I heard about it like this. It was fascinating when the articles started coming out in the Canadian press about it. Yeah. And uh, I, I've always, I've always thought, and you know, you don't, you know, you don't really hear a whole lot about it. It's not a whole a mainstream type of um, uh, experiment. Until, well, until more recent years when the thought form uh, theory became more prevalent. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, it is a fascinating it is a fascinating uh, experiment. Yeah. And like you say, it is not talked about and it needs to be talked about mm -hmm. because it's one of those things where, you know, it, we, we gloss over this, this idea of, of human involvement. And I think when people think of, of PK and psychokinesis, they think of, you know, spoon bending and mm -hmm. that kind of a thing, like manipulating physical objects in the space. They don't think about, you know, a consciousness being birthed from thought and that's a whole nother ball game. So, you know, I think that's one of the, one of the, the key studies that anybody who's, who's interested in this stuff or is going into this stuff initially have to read about the Philip experiment. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Uh, I got a question here from James. Uh, what is required for a dark entity to possess you? It's really interesting because um, there's, I mean, there's a plenty of forms of, uh, or thoughts on the idea of exorcism and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's depends on what people's take is, I think, on the, the idea of exorcism. Um, what's interesting <laughs> is that many of the people who, you know, who claim they've been possessed and things like that, many of them are very highly religious people, which is, I find exactly. very interesting. Um that's something that we have to acknowledge. <laughs> like, we have to acknowledge. And so I think a lot of the times when people are reporting things like possession and, and things like that, it really is a, a sort of a factor of, of people's state of expectation as to how this phenomenon will happen. Um, so I think some of it is that. Um, I think there is a strong parallel of mental illness that happens. I know that's not a popular answer, but it's that's real. Um, so there's that angle as well. But when you get into that very, very, very small percentage, what I find is that it's usually the people that are extremely religious. Um, you know, they are steeped in extreme negative emotion. And what's interesting is that in the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual for Statistical Medicine right now in the DSM-5, a colleague of mine was actually the one who got uh, possession um, put into the DSM-5. His name is Edsel mm -hmm. Cardenia. And interestingly, unless you have X number of, you know, negative symptoms with it, you're actually not considered possessed. So for example, somebody who's channeling something positive, like Jane Roberts or Esther Hicks or somebody like that, who's getting very, very positive messages, even though it's considered technically possession, it's not considered a possession trance disorder as it would be classified in the DSM-5, mm -hmm. um, which is really cool. So it's so it's I'm on the I'm on the fence about exactly how 
you know, how the mechanics of, of that type of thing works. I think there's a lot of state of expectation. I think there's a lot of people who get wrapped up in paranormal phenomenon and it goes a little bit too far. I think, so I think there's a, a multitude of, of reasons in terms of like, you know, full on out possession. I've not witnessed one. Um, so, I mean, I, I feel like I can't quite comment on that as much as I'd like to. Well, I have. Uh, oh, okay. And I, and I was going <laughs> to ask you that. Then. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you have ever been in, uh, present at a Catholic rites uh, exorcism. I have not. Well, I have. Oh my. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I um, bet. And I'll be honest with you, when if I if I'm doing a case, and I believe it's going to that extreme where there is yeah. actually possession, I tell them, you know, call the you know call your priest or call your pastor. Even your pastor will do it. Because uh, I am not going that deep. Yeah. You know, I have, <laughs> on two occasions, I have been at a house working and in walks the priest or in walks the pastor. And they're like, and I'm asking them, you know, what the hell is this all about? And um, I actually saw a priest run out of the house one time. He got scared. Yeah, yeah and- I believe it. Yeah, uh, th- you know, they, they they think, I think, and I, I don't like saying this because I've got a lot of Catholic friends, but I don't think they really ex- are ready for what may happen at some point. And, yeah, uh, yeah the, the whole experience is pretty bizarre. It really is. And and it what's fascinating when you, you look at the people who've who've had this happen and their histories, you always see a number of a number of factors that I think r- relate directly to this discussion, which is there's usually some sort of a trauma that has started the mm-hmm. the spiral. Um, you know, for example, like it's, you know, they've they've lost a loved one and have not dealt with it well. Um, there's been abuse in the family. Um, there's been something that's gone on that's traumatic again that is being left to fester that is kind of bleeding into their world um you know it usually doesn't start with something as extreme as like possession mm-hmm. you know there's other these these other little bits and pieces that sort of get bled out here and there and usually they're saying you know all oh, this was going on in the house or that was going on in the house and it was it was terrifying and so on and so forth so it's like all these little warning signs are happening right but they're getting they're either getting pushed aside or ignored or the family doesn't know what to do um and, you know, and it just escalates and escalates. But anytime you're getting somebody who is, you know, in that state of negative emotion, it will express itself somehow. And whether it be through, you know, something like multiple personality disorder, like dissociative identity disorder, whether it be through something like, um, you know, like uh, what what seems to be like a possession, whether it be, you know, external psychokinesis stuff that's going on, it will express itself somehow or a thought form or whatever. And I think when it comes down to something like possession, it's another expression of that, whatever that trauma is that's going on that's just been unhealed and undealt with. No, I agree with you. It's always a progression. Yeah. It always starts with something very small from way back and yeah. it, it seems to compound itself. And um unfortunately it's almost like pulling teeth when you talk to the you know when you talk to the client about that uh and to get them to open up yeah and and a lot of times they don't remember much of it i mean something of that has happened you know i don't necessarily recommend hypnotic regression in some cases but it, it does help sometimes but i you know i think that's um 
there's there always does seem to be not, you know, it's, it's interesting how the human mind will uh kind of gloss over things that are traumatic and you know not, not be able to recall your person not able to recall them later on but uh unconsciously is there yeah and, well and uh, the body recalls it you know the like the body knows like whether we're conscious of it or not the body knows like we know intuitively like something's not right even though we don't know what it is we might yeah. not be able to put our finger on it but you know like once you when you really take that that deep dive into yourself and you sit and you really feel you know when something's off and it's so easy for us to just gloss over especially when it's something that we don't want to look at mm -hmm. and so you know it's uh, you can understand, I think, why people are just, uh, uh, you know, adverse to going there. It's like, okay, you know what? I'll do anything to fix this except for that. I'll do anything but there. But unfortunately, there is usually where your healing is. So mm -hmm. it's like we've we've got to go there. And once that's dealt with, and I mean, and and this will happen through many exorcism processes as well, where it's actually about calling that person forward with positive memories, which is one of the techniques that they use is like, look at over here, come see this, you know, come, come see the positive emotions and the positive photographs. And, you know, remember when your family did this and that, and you had these great memories. And it's interesting because it's this slow guided thought process back to a, a more, a more, lighter state of being and mm -hmm. so it's it's really it's interesting because it's even present in there so um why don't you tell folks how they can contact you what you've got coming up and uh you know about your book and how they can get a hold of it you bet so my main website is entityseeker.ca and I've got all of my my some of my live shows are there my videos are there um you can pick up my book, Teaching the Living from Heartbreak to Happiness in a Haunted Home. Uh, the links are on the website as well, um, as well as tons of, uh, you know, my interviews and my program, Spiritual Healthcare. Um, there is also a link to who, my current podcast, which is Supernatural Circumstances with the amazing Mike Brown of Dark Poutine. And we interview the best parapsychologists and the most, I think, the most eye-opening people in the world um, who are at the forefront of this information. They are, are brilliant and they are the ones like today we actually talked to uh, Dr. Uh, Mark Bacozzi because he's dealing, doing mediumship and AI experiments, which is phenomenal. Um, so that airs um, literally on any podcast platform you can, <laughs> you can imagine you just pick one and download it. Um, and uh, yeah, season four of Haunted Hospitals should be out uh, in the next little while. It's I finished shooting that in January, um, so hopefully that will be that will be out soon. Um, and yeah, there's always projects. There's always something going on. So EntitySeeker.ca. That's your that's the hub. You'll figure it all out. <laughs> well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad you came on with me. Oh, I'm and, so glad uh, I did too. When the other book comes out, of course, we're going to have to get you to come back and we'll talk I'd about love that. it then. So you take care. Have a great weekend. And we'll talk you to you soon. You too. See you. Bye, everyone. Bye. So uh, if you've had an unexplained encounter or sighting, feel free to contact me directly at uh, lawnstrict or phantomsandmonsters.com or through the Phantoms and Monsters blog site. Also, if uh, you would like to have your encounter or sighting read on the show, please forward it to my email. We plan on starting a separate show where I will be reading cases and such.
that have been posted on Phantoms of Monsters or that the Phantoms of Monsters 14 research team have been working on. And, uh, you know, your, your new uh, experiences as well. So uh, send them to me and let me know that you want them read on the show. So, again, I want to thank uh, Morgan Knudsen for joining me this evening. And uh, thanks to each and all of you for watching and chatting. If you made a Super Chat donation, it's truly appreciated. Your support is what makes this possible. Please click on the subscribe button and also become a member of the Phantoms of Monsters radio show. Uh, my new book, The Meme Humanoids, Modern Myths and Real Monster or Real Monsters, is now available on Amazon.com. So next week, my guest will be cryptozoologist and author Ken Gerhardt. Uh, we're going to catch up with Ken, talk about some of the uh, newer investigations he's been involved with. Uh, he's been a busy guy, too. So as well as um, also a few other interesting surprises may pop up as well. So be sure to tune in. So until next week, stay healthy and have a safe and enjoyable weekend. Good night.